the 24th chapter of Exodus. Then Moses went up unto the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. And for six days the cloud covered it, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud, and to the Israelites the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on the mountain top. This is our text. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Dear friends in Christ, a London newspaper just this past Monday, January 28th, had a bulletin. And this is what the London newspaper bulletin read. Quote, Prince Charles on Sunday got the dubious distinction of being Britain's longest serving king-in-waiting at 59 years and 74 days, surpassing the age of Edward VII when he succeeded Queen Victoria to the throne in 1901. Quoting a former aide, the Sunday Times of London reported that, quote, Charles realized long ago that he would spend most of his life as an heir as king. His, his is a family marked by longevity, and his mother is in very good health, unquote. In fact, his mother, Queen Elizabeth, indeed is. She is surpassed. Indeed, her great-great-grandmother, Queen Victoria, is Britain's oldest serving monarch at the age of 81, just recently. And so it looks like Prince Charles may be the longest-serving king-in-waiting for many, many years yet to come. Patient waiting. Perhaps it's a princely virtue. And if it is a princely virtue, it certainly is a virtue that isn't so common to us commoners. Because it's very hard to wait, and I think we all so often find that to be so true. Whether it's waiting for an order to be delivered, or an order to come in the mail, or an airline flight to arrive, or perhaps one to depart, or a doctor's appointment, or a medical test result to come back in, whatever it is, waiting doesn't come easily for most of us, especially if while you're waiting for something to happen, it doesn't seem that something is happening at all. Moses knew what it was like to wait while it appeared that nothing was happening. Because that's what seemed to happen to him in our text for today. It might seem surprising that Moses would be that type of a figure who would have to wait for something to happen because as you look back at Moses' life, his life was full of divine activity. His life, perhaps more than anyone else, had divine intervention happening in it all the time. Trace the path of his life and see what I mean. Here, for example, in Moses, was a man to whom God appeared. Appeared in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, remember, in Exodus chapter 3, there at Mount Horeb. Here was a man to whom God appeared. Here was a man to whom the Almighty spoke in no uncertain terms. Here was the man to whom was given tablets upon which were inscribed in Hebrew letters, words that were written by the very finger of God himself. Here was the man to whose call God would rain down curses and bring down plagues upon the enemies of Israel, in particular Egypt at that time. 
Here was the man who had experienced a life of privilege in Pharaoh's courts, a life of nomadic pilgrimage out in the middle of the desert, the life of power as with outstretched arm. He holds a staff over the Red Sea and the waters part. Here was a man in whose life the divine intervention of God was evident so often, so frequently, so regularly. And yet, despite all of the excitement of this divine intervention that Moses experienced over all his years, there were also, in Moses' life, those times of very important waiting. Their text for today is one of those times in which Moses is found waiting, simply waiting, waiting for something to happen, waiting for God to show up. Isn't that what he was waiting for? Today's text describes one of those times, having ascended with others, as we heard in the Old Testament lesson today, halfway up the mountain, he announces to the huffing priests and the puffing leaders of Israel that were along with them as they went up that mountainside, he announces to them that he was going to continue from the halfway point up to the top of the mountain all by himself. And our text tells us that a great cloud came and a great cloud covered the mountaintop, and the glory of the Lord then settled down upon that mountaintop. And then it adds these most interesting words, and it says, For six days the cloud covered that mountaintop. For six days. And then it says, On the seventh day the Lord called out to him from within that cloud. For six days... Moses simply waited while nothing much happened. He just went up there and he waited for God to show up. He waited for God to do something. He waited for God to speak. And on the seventh day, finally, God did. And the seventh day, he called to Moses. Note again where he called from. He called from the midst of the cloud. And to the Israelites, way down below, the text tells us that the appearance of the Lord there on the mountaintop speaking to Moses on the seventh day after six days of waiting from the midst of the cloud was like unto them a fire that was there on the mountaintop, a consuming fire, it says. For six days he waited for something to happen, and then on the seventh day it finally did. Now, race ahead. Consider our gospel reading for today. And note well the amazing parallels between Moses on the mountaintop and our Lord Jesus Christ on the day of transfiguration, which we celebrate today as we prepare to enter into the season of Lent. Notice the parallels between those two events. The disciples waiting. Because remember what it says, for six days Moses waited. Remember the text says, how does the gospel for today begin? After six days... Interestingly, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up into the high mountain by themselves. Not long before, Peter had made that great confession of faith when Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? And he replied by saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then came a time of waiting before the Mount of Transfiguration event took place. And after six days, it says, they go, and then Jesus takes some of them up to the mountaintop, three in particular. In each case, whether it be Moses or Jesus, in each case, God's majestic glory appears. 
And it appears where? In each case, it appears in the clouds. In each case, the clouds are where? On the mountaintop. There's more than coincidence in the way that these two parallel accounts are given. These are divinely designed. This is, is divinely executed parallels that are here. The Holy Spirit showing us something significant, important. This is divinely intended stuff, not just coincidence. And in each case, the glory of the Lord appearing is described how? As fire that's burning or as light that's shining. I like the way that Lutheran pastor William Sirhala puts it. He says, quote, Jesus is transfigured before them. The Greek word here, he says, is metamorphosized, which means changed in appearance. We might say that he was morphed. Jesus was morphed before them. Here was a Jesus they hadn't seen before, he says, shining, glorious, radiant, glowing, brighter than the brightest light, his clothing and on earthly white, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, shining through his humanity. Every cell of his human flesh glowed with the brilliance of God, the fullness of God and the human flesh of Jesus, the God-man, fully God, fully man. What a sight it must have been. The second person of the undivided trinity shining with all the glory of God. Well put. Peter, James, and John had never seen anything like this before. They wouldn't again until they finally get to heaven. Granted, many times they had probably seen a brightly shining light as they were fishermen out fishing on the Sea of Galilee, and the light would reflect off that Sea of Galilee and hit them in the eyes. They'd see that kind of reflected light. They might see it as the Roman soldiers would parade and patrol through their towns, and the shining of the sun would hit the swords, the spears, the saddleware of the Roman soldiers that patrolled. But this light that they saw was unique. The first time that they had really seen that kind of light in their life, because it wasn't reflected light. This was light emanating from the very face of Jesus, coming from the very body of Jesus. I like the way Swirla puts it. Every cell of glory with the brilliance of uh, glowing with the brilliance of God. A light so magnificently intense that it penetrated right through the very garments that Jesus was wearing without destroying them so that they became, as Matthew says, as white as light. And seeing this, how could they help but remember? And you can be sure that Peter, James, and John had to think as they saw this because they were Old Testament men in, the, in their own way. They knew the accounts well. There's no way that they could have seen this without thinking of Moses on Mount Sinai and all that there had happened. Whereupon Moses then received the two tablets of the law, the skin of his face shining so brightly, Scripture tells us that Moses' face had to be veiled because the people were afraid to come near him when he came down from the mountain having received the law. And yet Moses' face was shining with what kind of light? It wasn't with a, a light that was emanating from the face of Moses. It was reflected light from the glory of God in the mountaintop that Moses was reflecting. And yet even there, his face had to be shielded that the people of Israel might look upon him because he had seen the Lord of glory. But here... 
Here on this mountaintop, on the Mount of Transfiguration, something even more phenomenal is happening than that which had happened thousands of years before with Moses. Something more phenomenal happening because here was someone who was more phenomenal and far greater than Moses. Here was Moses' Lord. Here was Moses' God. Here was Jesus. Jesus, whose whole body, every cell of it glowing, with divine majesty. Moses shone like the moon when he shone reflective light. Jesus shone like the sun. So we sing as you will. Jesus shines brighter. Jesus shines purer than all the angels in the sky. And there with Jesus in the mountaintop, as we hear in today's gospel, were those two figures of the past, Moses, that great representative of the law, Elijah, the great representative of all the prophets, and there on the mountain, standing between Moses and Elijah, was the one who fulfills everything that the law required of us, and who also is the one who fulfills all that the prophets had promised unto us. The fulfillment of the law and the prophets right there in Jesus, God in the flesh. And St. Matthew says simply in the gospel for today that Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus. But St. Luke expands upon it, as Luke does. And he expands upon it and he says that they were talking to Jesus about his exodus. They were talking to Jesus about his departure from the earth. They were talking to Jesus about his work of saving all of mankind. It wasn't a theology of glory that they were talking about there in the midst of the glory of it all. It was the theology of the cross. It was the theology and the work, the saving work of Jesus Christ for sinners. Those heavenly visitors, Moses and Elijah, there in the mountaintop with him, ambassadors of God the Father who had sent them to confirm that in just a short time, history's greatest moment was going to happen. And where was it going to happen? Not up on the mountaintop where the glory of the Lord was shining, but it was going to happen on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem where the glory of the Lord would be worked in ways that only faith can see. Was it worth the wait for Peter, James, and John there in the mountaintop, even as it had been for Moses in the mountaintop, as he waited for the glory of the Lord to appear? Oh, you can be sure it was, because they saw. As Peter says in today's epistle lesson, they saw. They were eyewitnesses of his majestic glory. In fact, so impressive was it to Peter, what was his response? Lord, let me set up three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And we'll just stay here and we'll, we'll make this glory last just as long as we can. This energizing, exciting experience. We've got to keep it. We've got to contain it. We've got to prolong it for as long as we can. And you see, Peter was all caught up in this theology of glory. And at that moment in time, Peter had no place and he had no time for the theology of the cross. William Cyrilla, once again, speaks so well and puts it so well when he speaks of Peter's theology of glory at that point, which is so much like the theology of glory that we see happening throughout churches even in our country today. 
emphasizing the glory of God rather than the all-important work of God upon the cross. And he says, quote, you can just imagine what would have happened if Peter had succeeded in his request, if he had succeeded in this little building project. It would have become a tourist attraction, a theme park, Morph Mountain, a shrine where people would come to pray or to be healed of their demons or their dandruff. There would be Morph Mountain website. There'd be t-shirts and posters and testimonials of miraculous Morph Mountain healings. There'd be little vials of dirt or pieces of rock from the top of the mountain which would have claims of miraculous powers. Busloads of church groups would make their pilgrimages there so that ordinary people like you and me could set their feet in the place where Moses and Elijah stood with Jesus and then we'd somehow, he says, feel closer to God because of it. Sounds an awful lot, like a lot that we see and hear about today. But dear friends, that's not where God will be found. He's no longer found in mountaintop clouds. He will not be found in Christless or crossless places. No matter how holy men may deem them to be, he will not be found where his work on the cross is disowned or where it's minimized or where he is thought of as more of a miracle maker than a sin taker. No, he comes to us now. He comes to you right here in baptismal water where his word makes us his own and unites us as a special family with each other. He comes to us right here today and consecrated bread and wine with his very body and blood to forgive, to restore, to prepare your bodies and your souls for life in heaven. He comes to us in words proclaimed by men ordained who in the stead and by the command of Christ himself absolve penitent sinners of all their sins. Not in clouds on mountaintops of glory, not anymore but right here in word and sacrament, which bear to us all the benefits and all the blessings of Jesus Christ on the cross. You see what was said of those who ascended the mountain with Moses, the words on your bulletin cover for today? They can rightly be said also of us. And they beheld God. And then it says in the text after that, and they beheld God and they ate and they drank. Come, come to where God has promised to come to you today. Come for now, all is ready. Come and experience anew what the forgiveness of sins tastes like. Indeed, as the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And then leave his table saying with Simeon of old, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. They beheld the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.